This is Matt Watto, and you are about to hear part two of our Curbsiders episode on cirrhosis with Dr. Scott Matherly. In part one, we talked all about the diagnosis of cirrhosis and some of the predisposing conditions, and also a little bit about the initial management. On this next episode, we talk all about the medications that can be used to treat patients with cirrhosis, some of the complications of cirrhosis, and a lot more really interesting pathophysiology This episode was written and produced by Dr. Cyrus Askin with excellent infographics by Beth Garbs Garbatelli. And I hope you enjoy it as much as you enjoyed part one. If you haven't heard part one yet, then please go back and listen to that one first. We are going to jump right into Dr. Matherly's bio and then right into the episode. None of the normal intro banter. So I know some of the audience will be happy about that. All right. Thank you and enjoy. Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let's know what we're wrong. Dr. Matherly is an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. He's board certified as an internist, also in gastroenterology and transplant hepatology. He completed medical school at the University of South Carolina, residency at Johns Hopkins, and completed his fellowship training in GI and transplant hepatology at VCU. As a member of the faculty at VCU, he has been recognized no fewer than five times as the VCU School of Medicine Teacher of the Year. In addition to his teaching responsibilities, Dr. Matherly is the co-director of the Multidisciplinary Hepatocellular Cancer Clinic in the Hume-Lee Transplant Center. He does a fantastic job teaching us all about cirrhosis, diagnosis, pathophysiology, and all sorts of little treatment pearls. This is a packed episode, and I hope you find it as useful as we did. Any other testing that we should do up front here? So we we sort of told told her what cirrhosis is. We've counseled her on some lifestyle things. Now we've kind of got, looked for varices. What anything else that we need to do up front? Are you starting medications at this point? Um, can you kind of give us your the the basics? Well, let's let's just talk about medications a little bit, and I do want to address a, a few of these medications, uh, and so with regards to the Nash cirrhotic uh, in, in particular. Um, first of all, with regards to lifestyle modification, does she need to be on a low sodium diet until they need to be, and really until the cirrhotic patient has developed uh, ascites or volume overload of some sort, they don't really need to be on a low sodium diet. Low sodium diets are miserable. Um, people don't like them. The food doesn't taste good. It's bland. Um, so unless they're like hypertensive or, or need to be on a low sodium diet, I don't typically do it because it's not really going to change anything, uh, in the, in the long run. Um, the high protein diet, I, I think that's a pretty good idea. Now, one thing I would like to just get out there to your, all your listeners is do not, please do not ever put your cirrhotic patients on a low protein diet, uh, especially the patient who's had one or two episodes of hepatic encephalopathy. That's, uh, that's some, that's some old thinking, uh, from a long time ago that, um, a low protein diet would prevent encephalopathy. 
Uh, but the bottom line is that um, it hurts the patients quite significantly. Uh, cirrhosis is a very, very catabolic condition. Patients lose muscle mass dramatically with this disease, uh, especially if they don't maintain higher protein diets. Uh, and they get very sarcopenic, and, and that's associated with a whole host of poor outcomes for them. Um, and so, I, if anything, I counsel my patients to increase their, at least get a gram a day of, a gram per kilogram a day, a gram per kilogram per day, sorry, of, of protein, <laughs> uh, at least. Um, so, so, I don't ever put them on a protein restriction. Mm-hmm. Um, with regards to some of the medicines for, for NASH, you know, there's, there's been a variety of studies and a lot of conflicting data about uh, medicines for NASH. And, and quite honestly, NASH itself could be a, a whole nother episode. And, and I'm probably not the world's biggest NASH expert, but I deal, deal with it quite a bit. The one that's uh, been used a bit over the last few years is vitamin E. Uh, and this, this came out of the Pivens trial that was actually done here at VCU. Uh, P- Pivens stood for pioglitazone versus vitamin E versus nothing special. Um, <laughs> and the, Vitamin E uh, came out on top. It decreased the NASH um, findings on on biopsy. And so for a long time, we're putting all of our people on, on vitamin E. But the two people, the two groups of people that were excluded from the Pivens trial were cirrhotics and uh, patients with diabetes. Um, and so for the most part, in those two patient populations, I don't use vitamin E. And I think there's enough, there's some concerns, even though I think it's fairly overblown about the risk of, you know, cardiovascular events and other things that vitamin E, uh, that I, I think uh, I, don't, I don't like to use it in people who are higher risk for those, those sort of things. And vitamin E, another thing with vitamin E is once you put them on it, they stay on it because if you take them off of it, uh, their liver enzymes will sometimes spike up uh, pretty significantly. Pioglitazone uh, has gotten hot again recently. Even though in the Pivens trial it was a negative, uh, it, didn't, it didn't seem to work. Um, but uh, pioglitazone, there was a recent study showing it does seem to work. Um, I think most of us are kind of, we don't, we're kind of scared of pioglitazone. Um mainly because it makes people gain weight uh, almost continuously. And that's kind of counterproductive for your fatty liver disease patients uh, for the most part. And plus the concerns about, you know, weight, uh, water retention and your heart failure and, and bladder cancer. I think yeah, most of us are kind of freaked out about PO. I'm going to be honest with you. I, I, I don't use pioglitazone uh, personally. Uh, I do use vitamin E in the non-serotic, non-diabetic patient. And liraglutide um, for the, the glucagon-like peptide, uh, type things. I, I know there was a one good study that showed some some effect, but to be honest with you, I, I haven't used that drug. Moving on, kind of in, in this particular case, um, we definitely wanted to talk about some of the cirrhosis-specific medications. So maybe a step in that direction would be to tell you that, okay, five years down the road, Ms. Jones comes back to your clinic. She's starting to have symptoms. She's starting to have some swelling in her lower extremities, a sense of fullness in her abdomen. Uh, you stopped her blood pressure medications a few years back. Her blood pressure is now 103 over 55 off medications. And so talking about some of the, the interventions that are available, things like diuretics, um, medications to prevent hepatic encephalopathy, some other meds, could you kind of walk us through uh, what medications we should be thinking about from a treatment standpoint at this stage in the game? Well, can I assume at this point she has ascites, right? I mean, yeah. that's, this, the, the fullness in her abdomen uh, <laughs> is, is probably the development of ascites. The other, there's a you would be correct. Of, oh, yes. <laughs> there's a couple of things in, in this little scenario that are concerning to me as a hepatologist. Not only the development of ascites, uh, which is uh, once they develop ascites, 
the prognosis is significantly worse. Um, a five-year survival can be as low as 44% um, at, at that point. And um, the other thing is the dramatic decrease in her blood pressure. This is someone that was previously on two antihypertensive agents, and now she's got a blood pressure of 103 systolic over 55, which gives you a map, I think, of 71, something along that, that range. This is a person who's in a little bit of trouble um, from, from a cirrhosis standpoint. She's, she's developed a overt signs of the circulatory dysfunction of cirrhosis and and oftentimes this will be followed by you know other problems such as uh, development of hepatorenal syndrome etc etc if i saw this sort of clinic scenario my first thought would be is this person a transplant candidate should we be doing a transplant evaluation on this patient and if this is your patient in clinic and they have not seen a hepatologist they need to get to one sort of ASAP, because this is a patient who is now at risk for mortality uh, from her liver disease uh, quite significantly. I, I would start with that. With this patient, you mentioned the the low blood pressure and hepatorenal syndrome. I think it's always interesting. Can you talk just a little bit about the physiology that causes someone with cirrhosis to have low blood pressure? Yes. Um, the the circulatory dysfunction of cirrhosis is is one of the most fascinating and complex aspects of this disease. Uh, when a patient has significant cirrhosis and portal hypertension for a variety of reasons, whether it's inappropriate nitric oxide or whatever, they usually have marked dilatation and pulling of blood in their splanchnic circulation, so in, in, in the gut. So as a result of that, blood pulling in the gut, they have a relative hypovolemia peripherally. So they're, they don't have as much blood volume in their arteries and their arms, leg, brain, head, kidneys, uh, this part, this, this part of the world, the body, the body reacts to this, uh, unfavorably. Okay. So the heart will immediately increase its, uh, its contractility, its rate. Uh, it will develop this kind of high output state uh, in an effort to maintain the mean arterial blood pressure. The brain will start to release antidiuretic hormone. The kidneys start releasing renin, angiotensin, aldosterone. Um, and the result of this is that the kidneys really clamp down and become very sodium avid, very water avid. Uh, we begin to retain fluid. And because of the dysfunctional circulation, that just adds more fluid to the mesenteric uh, vasculature, which is all dilated. And it's just a vicious cycle that ultimately that, that this is why the patients are hyponatremic. This is why the patients have low blood pressure. This is why ultimately develop hepatorenal syndrome, which is the sort of end of this vicious cycle. When the kidneys become so clamped down uh, from this process that they start to strangle themselves with their own blood supply and, and, and start to fail. This is what we're kind of up against with cirrhosis. It, it's it's a, a circulatory dysfunction on a systemic scale that is that is very very difficult uh, to deal with. Uh, we we try to manipulate this with some of our medications, and uh, we can be somewhat successful uh, with certain things. Uh, but we also have to be careful that we don't overdo it. Uh, and we can talk a bit about things such as metadrin, things such as beta blockers. Um, and diuretics as such. So basically, basically, we try to flog the body into doing what it doesn't want to do uh, with, with a variety <laughs> of medications. Um, just talking about ascites. So this, this, this lady has ascites. Uh, 
which you know, ascites is also it's, it's basically a complication of of portal hypertension. So one concept I'd like to just shoot out there for everybody is that when you know, as as a hepatologist, I view cirrhosis as two problems, two separate problems, um, separate but connected to one another. And one is the parenchymal liver failure of cirrhosis. Okay, so uh, that that leads to your high MELD score, your elevated INR, your bilirubin. That leads to liver cancer. Okay, those are the big two parenchymal problems of cirrhosis. But the major problem with cirrhosis, the one we deal with more than anything, is portal hypertension. Okay, and portal hypertension is elevated blood pressure in the portal vein, which is the main vein that drains the entire gut from the lower third of the esophagus to the rectum. Uh, and all of that blood will go to the liver before going to the rest of the systemic circulation. And when pressure increases in that vein because the liver is a cirrhotic, knotted up mess that doesn't work anymore. Um, <laughs> It causes many of the problems that we're going to end up dealing with. Okay, the circulatory dysfunction, the ascites, varices, hepatic encephalopathy. These are all complications of portal hypertension uh, and not necessarily the cirrhosis itself. You can have cirrhosis without portal hypertension and you can have portal hypertension without cirrhosis. So, so although they are related and they walk hand in hand, they're really two separate problems. Great explanation. Thank you. Um, Ascites. Let's talk, let's just talk ascites a little bit. I, you know, ascites is basically as a result of portal hypertension. You have increased pressure in the hepatic sinusoids. Uh, without knowing too much about hepatic. Uh, uh, histology. The hepatic sinusoids are essentially the capillaries of the liver, right? So they're they're where the the portal venules and the hepatic artery sort of dump into this uh, little fenestrated capillary that then leads to the central vein and out to the hepatic veins. Um, in portal hypertension, the pressure in that sinusoid, that hepatic capillary, increases significantly as a result of the portal hypertension. And this goes back to old Starling's laws that we learned in medical school. You know, if you increase hydrostatic pressure in a capillary, what's it going to do? It's going to push more fluid out of that capillary. Um, and then you combine that with decreased oncotic pressure because what is the major oncotic agent of the blood? albumin. And who makes albumin? The liver. Okay, so when the liver doesn't function well, we don't have a lot of albumin in our blood. We have a low oncotic pressure and increased hydrostatic pressure. And basically, you're pushing fluid out of the hepatic sinusoids and into the stuff of the liver. And the liver literally weeps fluid into the abdominal, into the peritoneal cavity. So it's just liver literally weeping out of the liver and in, into the belly. This is complicated by that circulatory dysfunction and that sodium avidity of the kidneys and the, the kidneys holding on the fluid, holding on to the sodium. The body can no longer handle that and it just weeps it into the abdomen. So how do we combat that? Uh, we combat that process to start with by a low-sodium diet, and this is hugely important. Um, a, low, a very strict low-sodium diet alone is often enough to control mild ascites, okay? Uh, but if that doesn't control it, then the next thing we move to are diuretics. And there's really two classes of diuretics that we, we concentrate on, the loop diuretics and the uh, potassium-sparing diuretics, in, in particular spironolactone. Um, so we will typically dose these medicines together in about once a day. So uh, we are, what we call a VCU step one diuretics is like 40 milligrams of furosemide and 100 milligrams a day of spironolactone. And that, that's what we'll put them on. We like that ratio because it seems to keep people's potassium level fairly stable. Um, they kind of balance each other out fairly nicely at that ratio of 40 of the basics to 100 of um, spironolactone. 
Um, and we can move, and we move that up by by increments of that. So to 80 of furosemide, 120 of furosemide, 160 of furosemide, uh, and as needed uh, to try to control the control the ascites. And basically, what we're doing there is we're just counteracting the kidney's desire to be sodium avid, and we're just flogging it into getting rid of the sodium and water, and making people pee. And that can be pretty effective for most folks. Did that ratio come from anywhere specific? Stuart was the, Stuart. You were asking me about this beforehand. I didn't come across it in my reading, but is, is that is, is that like just a dogmatic thing that's been around forever? And I've also heard people talk about don't start Lasix by itself. You know, you want to start them both at the same time. Can you speak to that a little bit? I think it is kind of a dogmatic thing. Uh, if it comes from studies, it comes from very early studies <laughs> that, that, <laughs> that I don't I don't remember reading. But uh, this is just something that I, okay. I was born into as as a hepatologist. So actually, when I came here for my training, I'd never heard of that that ratio, and I was I was kind of like, where What in the world is that? What do you mean step whatever? I, I don't know what you're <laughs> talking about. Uh, but you know, it clearly works uh, over the years. That that ratio clearly works. I don't typically start furosemide by itself. Uh, if anything, you would, you would, with an acidic patient, you would start spironolactone by itself. And that, that's what they do in Europe. Um, and that's, that's what they frequently will do is, uh, spironolactone seems to have, uh, it's a very powerful agent when it comes to ascites. Um, but, uh, the problems obviously with that are hyperkalemia, which you have to watch very closely. And with men, we run into a lot of problems with, uh, you know, sexual dysfunction and gynecomastia with that drug um, that can often limit its use. But the second line of that, uh, the amyloride, just lacks the power of spironolactone when it comes to ascites management. And Stuart, you were actually that was your question, right? A plerinone? It is a plerinone. Uh, does that have less of the gynecomastia? Does it work for? Plerinone is a very similar drug uh, to spironolactone. It just lacks that sort of uh, uh, peripheral uh, androgen antagonism that spironolactone has. Um, I have only used it a handful of times, mainly because I have a lot of trouble getting insurance to pay for it. Uh, it it's, it's a lot more expensive than, than the spironolactones of the world. Uh, but in the few people I've used it on, it seems to work Um just about as well. I don't think it's been studied well in, cir in cirrhosis. Paul, you've been quiet for a while. Did you have any specific treatment-related questions that you wanted to get in here while Stuart's working on his mic problem? <laughs> no, I, I think just thoughtful silence is best. Um, okay. I, I think we had questions about lactulose versus rifaximin um, as we're sort of moving through the actual active treatments. Let's talk about that. Then. Yeah, let's do it. I love me some lactulose and rifaximin. There's a couple of points with hepatic encephalopathy that I want to make. You know, hepatic encephalopathy is a very complex physiologic phenomenon that we love to distill into the very simplistic explanation of high ammonia levels, okay? So I will just tell you that that as a, as a hepatologist drives me a little bit nuts when people perseverate on ammonia and ammonia levels. Uh, for, the most place, for the most point, in the cirrhotic patient, um, Ammonia levels and drawing ammonia levels is essentially pointless and worthless. Uh, they do not correlate well with uh, levels of, of hepatic encephalopathy. 
Um, I'm always telling people not to draw them. When my medical students or residents tell me when the patient's ammonia level is in the in the hospital, I usually hiss at them like a cat. <laughs> uh, I'm just not, not, a big, not a big ammonia fan. I mean, to draw an ammonia level well, to be honest with you, it should be an arterial stick done without a tourniquet, put on ice, and run within 30 minutes. And you almost never see that. Um, it does have benefits in a couple of situations, like if you have a patient who's encephalopathic with no obvious underlying liver disease, ammonia level is appropriate to draw in that circumstance. And it also has prognostic significance in an acute liver failure patient. Uh, it can tell us who's at risk for brainstem herniation, that sort of stuff. But in the cirrhotic patient, hepatic encephalopathy is a clinical diagnosis, okay? If the patient is showing signs of encephalopathy, then they have encephalopathy. If they are not, then they probably do not. And whether or not their ammonia level is 48 or 200 uh, doesn't add much except for anxiety to the patient and his family members. Uh, I, I've, I've literally had patients come from the community having ammonia levels drawn on a weekly basis and having their lactulose titrated as, as, based on their ammonia levels. And and I really try to discourage that, that type of behavior. With regards for uh, uh, treatment of uh, hepatic encephalopathy, uh, the first line in is still lactulose. You know, lactulose is a good old non-absorbable disaccharide. It's a sugar. It's a syrup. People absolutely despise it. Um, <laughs> very, very sweet and nausea-inducing. Um, but it seems to work. Now, the question of why lactulose works is one of the most hotly debated and controversial topics in, in hepatology. Some people believe it acidifies the lumen of the gut and causes ammonia to be lost in the stool in the form of ammonium. Some people believe that it, uh, it acts mostly as a prebiotic uh, and, and basically uh, promotes the growth of non-urease-producing uh, organisms. Bottom line is I don't think we really know, uh, but we do know that it works. And, I, and I, the way that I recommend to my, fo my folks take the lactulose is that I want you to take this medicine. This is the only medicine that I'm going to give to you that I want you to change the dose yourself without telling me. I'd say you take as little or as much of this as you need every day to have three bowel movements a day. I mean, that, that's what I tell them. Okay, if that means you take it one tablespoon a day, great. If that means you take a tablespoon three times a day, fantastic. Whatever you need to do to achieve three bowel movements a day, essentially. Some people you'll find are not tolerant to lactulose. Lactulose is a very gas-forming medication. Uh, it's really not fun for your irritable bowel syndrome patients. Um, it is. Um, it can make people who are already distended with ascites very, very uncomfortable uh, with the distended abdomen. Uh, some people just can't handle it with the nausea. And some people continue to have encephalopathy despite being on lactulose, okay? And, and then the patients who have breakthrough encephalopathy or recurrent encephalopathy despite being on the frontline agent, then that's when we move to a second-line agent. And the second-line agent is rifaximin. Um, rifaximin is a wonderful drug, okay? Uh, hepatologists love rifaximin. <laughs> Clearly shown in the big study in the New England Journal to decrease encephalopathy episodes. Um, it is uh, really, we consider a second line agent uh, for treatment of encephalopathy for one major reason, and that's its vast cost. Uh, Rifaximin remains a very, very expensive drug uh, to this day. I wish it was not. Uh, if it was a cheaper drug, I think you would see many more cirrhotics on it. Um, the data for its use uh, is fantastic across the board. Um, there is uh, observational data that it may decrease infections. It may improve mortality in cirrhotics. 
It's a twice a day medicine, 550 milligrams twice a day. It's typically very well tolerated. Uh, the main problem I run into with rifaximin is, is getting people to be able to afford it. Um, and, and, and that's, that's the main thing with that. Um, there are some other things that have been looked at. There are some ammonia scavengers that have been used in, uh, like urea cycle disorders, especially in children. Um, those have been somewhat disappointing. There was a phase two trial that came out not long ago looking at, uh, one of them. Uh, and it uh, it seemed to work. Uh, but didn't work in people who are already on rifaximin. So it didn't seem to have any benefit above and beyond rifaximin. So that's the thing that we're always kind of looking for is what else can we do? We're, we're currently participating in a clinical trial. Where we're doing fecal transplant for uh, for hepatic encephalopathy. How oh, interesting. Oh, I love that. I that's very, I've never heard of that. That's very cool. Yeah, we're cutting edge here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and we also... Uh, you know, some people believe zinc is beneficial uh, for hepatic encephalopathy, but it can be really a devastating condition. And and one thing that surprised me early on and in dealing with uh, cirrhotic patients uh, was, you know, I've had patients that just have absolutely horrifying consequences of their cirrhosis. And to a person, they will almost always tell you that this is the consequence of their cirrhosis that they fear the most. Okay, they they fear this more than ascites. They fear this more than hepatic hydrothorax. They feel fear this more than varices. And the reason is because they lose themselves and they never know when it's going to occur. When patients get hepatic encephalopathy, they become amnestic and they they have no idea what happens for that period of time that they're encephalopathic. Uh, and so this is very terrifying for our patients. And and um, it's often hard for us to to figure out that it's going on early on in its course. Scott, I wanted to just clarify, with with the diuretics we talked about, we're starting those once the patient develops ascites. Right. With lactulose and rifaximin, are we starting those from the time of diagnosis of cirrhosis because those patients are at risk, or do you wait until they've had an episode of hepatic encephalopathy or the, what, what they call the mild hepatic encephalopathy? Yeah, no, we don't, uh, we don't typically start those medicines until someone has developed encephalopathy, whether it's covert encephalopathy or overt encephalopathy. Um, typically, you know, patients will present with encephalopathy in fairly vague ways, and you, ha- you have to be kind of alert to it. And oftentimes, the family members will be the first ones that, that bring it up. When I'm seeing patients in clinic, I'll, I'll ask questions looking for the early signs of encephalopathy. Uh, one of the earliest things you'll see is what reversal of the sleep-wake cycles. So, so I always ask them, are you up all night watching cooking shows and then you sleep all day? Okay. And, and people are like, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, are you sleepy a lot? Are, you, uh, are they slow when you answer them, when you ask them questions? Are they repeating themselves? Th- those are kind of the early signs of, of encephalopathy. And usually if I have any suspicion that that's what's going on, you know, rather than checking an ammonia level, I'll simply put them on lactulose and see if they improve. And oftentimes they will. I always tell them that this drug will clear the cobwebs out and you'll feel better. And they do. We've been talking for a while now. I don't think we're going to have time to get into sort of like the transplant stuff too much. I do. I think we should talk about beta blockers and this mean arterial pressure of 82, which from what I could tell came from one study in 1988 that's been quoted like 400 <laughs> plus times. <laughs> and it looked at like, it was a small number of patients looking at all these different mortality predictors. And they came out with a mean arterial pressure of 82 or above is much more favorable than less. So 
that was a big decision point as far as blood pressure meds and things. That's a pretty decent map. I would say a good percentage of cirrhotics usually have maps less than 82. This was, uh, Cyrus had dug up an article. It wasn't that old, actually. It was, for, it was a review on treatment of cirrhosis from New England Journal of Medicine 2016. Uh, I believe the lead author was Philip. And uh, that was that was kind of quoting that in there. But what to, can you tell us about the beta blockers in this beta blocker window? Is that something we believe in? It, it just it, to me from the outside, not being a hepatologist, it seems like beta blockers are just like wildly taken on and off of these patients, and I have no idea what's well, happening. Well, your your observations are absolutely correct. I, I would I would I would characterize the beta blocker debate as wild. Uh, it was like every. <laughs> Every few months, every meeting we have, there's a conflicting study, um, and that mm. people are like, "Oh, beta blockers are good. Beta blockers are bad. Beta blockers are good. Beta blo- beta blockers kill people in acute or chronic liver failure. No, they they help people in acute or chronic liver failure." So, uh, it has been dizzying um, uh, to be a hepatologist and try to figure out what to do with beta blocker medications. For the most part, I think that most of the studies, most of the observational studies are starting to lean on the fact that, that beta blockers are, for the most part, beneficial uh, in, in cirrhotic patients up until a certain point. Okay, And, and luckily, the Bovino 6 uh, folks in Europe gave us some guidelines uh, on this as well, which I think are very helpful. Um, and they, they basically say that you should discontinue the beta blocker if your patient's systolic blood pressure is less than 90 uh, or their sodium level is less than 120 or they have acute kidney injury. Okay, and that, that's fairly simple to understand. Now, those numbers probably sound fairly drastic to uh, people who don't take care of end-stage cirrhotics regularly, but um, it's very common for our patients to have systolic blood pressures in the 90s. Um, it would not not at all be unusual. Uh, sodium level less than 120 is pretty darn low. So th- these th- these guidelines are saying you can keep your beta blocker patients on until they're very, very advanced. Um, and right now in the world of hepatology, the beta blocker debate is very provider dependent. It, it really is a, based on that physician and kind of what they feel about and what they're concerned about. Because I don't know that there's a great clear answer on this. I mean, why do we even use beta blockers in cirrhotic patients? We use it really for one reason, and that's for variceal prophylaxis. Okay, so if we put, if somebody has large varices or have a history of variceal bleeding, we want that person on beta blockers to prevent those varices from bleeding. Uh, the, and not just any beta blockers, right? So they have to be non-selective beta blockers. And, and why non-selective beta blockers? Well, we, we use that beta-1 blockade to uh, decrease the cardiac output. And the beta-2 blockade will actually lead to unopposed alpha um, vasoconstriction of that dilated splanchnic mesenteric vasculature that I, that I talked about. And that decreases portal inflow and decreases portal pressure. Uh, and that's why we use non-selective beta blockers. If you, if you use a, a beta-1 selective beta blocker, then you're not getting that unopposed alpha. So you lose, you're just decreasing cardiac output, but you're not really affecting portal flow too much. Um, And so we just use these on our patients with varices uh, for the most part. They do seem to have other benefits in this cirrhotic patient. They increase, uh, you know, gastric transit. They may decrease bacterial translocation. There are some other things that that beta blockers do that are beneficial. Um, but uh, I would say for the most part that we're we're trying to keep folks on the beta blockers until they're getting pretty advanced these days. 
I guess my last question, we, we mentioned the map of 82, which is a pretty high mean arterial pressure. Uh, is that someone with a, a mean arterial pressure less than 82? Is that a patient that you're putting on mitodrine to try to, to raise it up? Or how do you make the decision to put someone on mitodrine? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And I just did it today. So uh, I, you know, I, <laughs> I saw a patient who is having ascites and their kidney function is low and their blood pressure is low. You know, the question of whether to use, I mean, typically midodrine and certainly midodrine and octreotide are reserved for the patient with type 1 hepatorenal syndrome. This is when the catastrophic syndrome when the kidneys are absolutely failing as a result of liver failure. It's deadly, and if not uh, aborted, will lead to death if not transplanted, okay? So um, that that's where we use midodrine and octreotide the most. Uh, and unfortunately, most of the world uses terlipressin, the vasopressin analog, but we don't have that in the United States, not approved here. So so we're left with either midodrine and octreotide or norepi if we have an adventurous uh, intensivist that we can convince <laughs> to use it. Um, so, uh, but I do use midodrine periodically in patients, especially patients with refractory ascites that I'm struggling to diurese. Uh, because every time I put them on even a little bit of diuretics, their kidney function starts to worsen. And I will use midodrine to try to boost their blood pressure, at least for a little while, to perfuse their kidneys a little better, to hopefully be able to diurese those a little better. And I, uh, I would say that um, this, the use of midodrine in this way is, is also fairly controversial, I, I would say. Um, I don't like to use it in the long term. Uh, I, I feel like people tachyphylax the midodrine after a while. They, they kind of lose their effect. And then if they do come in with a renal syndrome and they tachyphylax the metadrine, you've kind of lost your major uh, method of aborting that. So I, I will typically use it in the short term to try to get their kidneys in a better place so that I can get them on some diuretics. Um, but I don't use it as a long-term medicine usually. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna open it to the co-hosts here and see if uh, anybody has any burning questions. I, I think we could easily talk for another Absolutely. hour, but I think all of us all of us would <laughs> die of <laughs> we all we all have to work tomorrow. Uh, so we'll we'll have to cut it here and and bring Scott back for another one. Yeah, like he just it. tosses questions to us, then you immediately cut us off. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any other questions? Done. No, no, go. No, go I, I, I really don't want. We don't, don't have, have any questions. Just any no, we have none. I, I think. I, I think I would just uh, ask if you could comment on either. SCP prophylaxis. Yeah. Oh goodness. Yeah. Another another thing that uh, has dramatically changed, and quite honestly, I think current practice has kind of outstripped current guidelines on this. Um, you know, back when I first started training, the big thing was that if uh, a patient had had a history of spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. Uh, or had a low protein ascites, they should be on primary prophylaxis with antibiotics, right? And and we usually we usually use Cipro, or some people use Bactrim if they're Cipro allergic. I'm sorry, uh, sulfamethoxazole trimethoprim. I'm sorry, <laughs> I got to go to my generic. Sorry, trim sulfa, um, yeah. But this is one of the things that's being colored very greatly by what's going on in the world of of you know infectious disease, right? So. Um, we live in a, a world of C. difficile and a, a world of multi-drug resistant organisms and, and chronic antibiotic use is rapidly falling out of favor. Um, for patients that have a history of spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, without question, they need to be on secondary prophylaxis with, with an antibiotic and we keep them on it and it clearly improves their survival. Okay. Um, for the patient who has never had SBP, 
I would say that we're much, much more selective these days about who we put on primary prophylaxis. We don't just put everyone who has low protein ascites anymore. I would say it's mostly restricted to patients who have low protein ascites who also have kidney injury or a patient with low protein ascites who is uh, hospitalized uh, and at risk for infection. Uh, we're much more picky these days about who we put on primary prophylaxis just because the studies have clearly shown cirrhotic patients with infections have absolute horrifying mortality. Cirrhotic patients with multi-drug resistant infections, it's a magnitude worse. Uh, and so we always have to keep that in mind, um, you know, with, with these patients. It's always a balancing act with a decompensated cirrhotic. Almost anything you do for them has the potential of harming them. And you have to constantly... Uh, reanalyze what you're doing and its risk and benefits to your patient. I think we're going to end here. Uh, we always like to get some take-home points from from our guests. So if you could give like, I don't know, two or three really important points that you wanted the audience to remember, and then uh, and then that'll be it. You know, the the most important point, I think, from a cirrhosis standpoint is that, especially as internal medicine doctors, the most effective management of cirrhosis is prevention of cirrhosis or catching cirrhosis, you know, before it occurs. So, you know, the real take home point is to be diligent out there for patients who may have underlying liver disease. Check your patients for hepatitis C when appropriate. Look out for fatty liver disease in your obese diabetic patients. Pay, know what the normals are for ALT. Uh, and realize that there may be a problem when it doesn't look like there's one. So I, I would say that's the main problem because we can get to these folks before they're decompensated. Uh, we can often do a world of good for them. Treatment of a hepatitis C patient with early cirrhosis will likely decrease or eliminate their need for transplant. It decreases their risk for liver cancer. Uh, getting to these folks early is key. It's, it's a paramount to their survival and really... You know, primary care doctors and internal medicine doctors are the the forefront of that. Uh, by the time they get to me and they're a hot mess, I'm really just really working very hard just to keep them stable. And and we need to get to them before they get to that point. So that's my take home message to you guys. Keep your eyes open, your ears peeled. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Excellent. We'll let you get back to uh, Battlefield One and <laughs> thank you so much for your time tonight. Oh, thanks for inviting me, guys. This was fantastic. If you ever need a liver doc back again, give me a holler, okay? We appreciate that. Thanks so much. Have a good night. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. You can get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast or sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. We're committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge and we want your input, so send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com or reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham, here with Dr. Cyrus Askin. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I do not like that. And this <laughs> remains Paul Williams and goodbye. That was a little creepy. <laughs> Can we do that again? <laughs> nope. <laughs> I can cut it. I'd like it, I'd like it to stay in. And thank you to our all our correspondents who are helping to write and produce the show. On Twitter, we have Hannah Abrams, 
Beth Garbatelli is on Instagram and Chris Chu Manchu is on Facebook. Thank you and good night. Obviously, talking about hepatic encephalopathy. Oh, yeah, we can hear you now. Welcome <laughs> back. I think when you turned on your tanning bed, your mic went. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs>